you guys doing out there? Good? I've uh, shown you two, movie, two little videos this morning, one from The Knight's Tale, dealing with mercy, and this one, which is about transformation. I think you'll see how those two fit into the message as we dig in. It's great to see you guys here. We are starting something brand new today, chapter 12 of Romans. Uh, let me give you the big picture so you know where we are headed. Uh, Calvin might not know where people are headed, uh, thinks that maybe nobody knows where they're going until they get there, but uh, we have just finished up the doctrinal portion of Romans, Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. So we're finished with that. We're digging now into the practical portion of the book, uh, and the practical portion really answers this question. When a person uh, accepts Jesus Christ by faith as Lord and Savior, and when all of the things that are spelled out in the first 11 chapters of Romans are true, uh, when that begins to take effect, what can that person expect to see happen in real life? I mean, when the Holy Spirit of God moves into a life to lead us, and we allow that person to lead us, what should we begin to see going on in real life that will remind us uh, about what's going on with us when we have doubts? You know, when those hard times of life come, uh, remind us that we really are God's children. Remind us that God really does love us and that he will lose none of us along the path of history. So we're talking about that particular God, right? Our God, who when it's all done, will see everyone and everything in the universe bowing down to proclaim his glory. And I mean literally everyone. Adolf Hitler will bow down in honor and praise. Mao Zedong will bow down in honor and praise. Stalin will bow down in honor and praise. Idi Amin will bow down in honor and praise. Osama bin Laden will bow down in honor and praise. Ayatollah Khomeini will bow down in honor and praise. And the universe watching will be blown away that you and I as Christians, deserving death as much as any of those people, have been granted mercy by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're going to look at two verses today that kick off Romans chapter 12, two verses. If you've ever been in any kind of a plan that memorized Bible scripture, these two verses were certainly in it. Here's what they say. Paul's writing, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> God, as we just finished up a time of worship, glorious praise to you. We'd ask that you would descend on our minds as well as our hearts as we open your word. Teach us what we need to know. May we be changed by our time with you, even transformed. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in talking about what happens in the life of a Christ follower, uh, it should not surprise anybody if you've been with us for any length of time in the book of Romans that Paul just does not just ad-lib a bunch of things that happen, a bunch of ideas in no particular order. That, that's not the Apostle Paul. He is very systematic, and he's going to mention seven specific areas of our lives as he finishes up this book over the next few chapters where you and I can expect ripples to occur when we come to God through faith in Christ. 
It's going to start even today with this relationship with God. What does our relationship to God look like? How does that change? Uh, it kind of flows out from that into kind of the role God has for us in the body of Christ, the local church. It goes beyond that into affecting our relationships with, with people the Bible actually refers to as enemies, those who might do us wrong or think bad thoughts of us or even persecute us because of our faith. It kind of blows out beyond that into how we deal with governing authorities, right? It changes how we uh, deal with our unbelieving neighbors in the world. Uh, and it changes how we go about doing our business on a day-to-day -day basis. We may have a job, but the job we have really from Christ is to spread the gospel to those that don't know it. And finally, um, it's gonna, we're going to push that gospel message out. So here's what's uh, kind of waiting for us uh, as we go through the rest of this book. Today we're going to begin where Paul does in these first two verses. What is a reasonable response to this undeserved God, God that or undeserved mercy that God has poured out on us, this love that God has shown us? I mean, uh, on the screen is what one person thought was reasonable when a spider dropped off of his lamp onto his keyboard and it disappeared into the keys. It just seemed like the reasonable thing to do to burn that sucker, right? So, so Paul is wondering, can a person claim Christ as Lord and Savior on a Sunday and walk away completely unchanged? Paul would argue, no, that does not compute. God gave his best, right, his only son to die. And in doing so, he gave us life. The only proper response, the only proper worship of God that results in that exchange is a willingness to hand that life back over to God for him to use. Now, that's going to be awfully hard to do, right? I mean, if you don't really have faith in Christ, I mean, if you don't really have faith, if you don't really trust, then you're, you're never going to lay that life of yours down. But if you believe God when he says who Jesus is, and you believe what God says about who, what Jesus did, and you believe that ultimate joy only really comes through Christ, well, just a normal thing, practical thing, reasonable thing, logical thing, Paul says, to just make yourself a living sacrifice to God. It's kind of like the old joke. A chicken and a pig were walking down the road, and uh, alongside the road, there's a big billboard that says, feed the poor. And the chicken turns to the pig and says, you know, gosh, that, that's really struck me. That, that affected me. It, it, you know, I think that's feed the poor. Good, it's a good idea. We ought to do that. Why don't you and I prepare a ham and egg breakfast for the poor? And the pig turns to the chicken and says, well, I don't know about that. For you, that breakfast would be, you know, a contribution. For me, it'd be total commitment, right? And by the way, my nine-year-old granddaughter, Reese, knows this. Her favorite animal right now is, is the pig. I don't, I don't know where that comes from. I have no idea why, why the pig, right? No idea. Her twin, Poppy, loves sloths. I, I get sloths, right? They're, they seemingly look cute. But pig, that's, that's Reese. Anyway, so Jackie crochets her this, this pig, and Reese names it, get this, Hamilton. Get Ham, Hamilton. If you don't get that yet, I, I, don't, I can't help you, right? <laughs> anyway, when we go to breakfast with the girls, and the plate of bacon is served, you know what Reese does? She takes Hamilton, which is always sitting on the table, and she turns its back to the table. So, so it can't see the total commitment of the pig to the meal. I, seriously, okay, uh, 
I told her she'd be on the big screen today, so she's, on, she's in cloud nine. Okay, she's a star, she thinks. Anyway, I think Paul is making the point that a lot of Christians like to make contributions, not total commitment. They show up in church, we toss God an hour, we listen to a message, we sing a song or two, and that's pretty much it. There's nothing life-changing going on. And in real life, they, they kind of look a lot like everybody else in town. And you know, you know something? The world outside this theater can see that. And they know instinctively that there's something off. They, they may not believe anything that we believe, but they do know this. If you believe in a God that handed his son over to be executed in your place, that ought to make a difference in your life. And if all you're doing is going to a meeting on Sunday when you have nothing better to do, tossing me a little loose change here and there, and pretty much live like everybody else during the week, they know outside this room that something's screwy. They know that our God is a whole lot more committed to us than we are to him. And God wants commitment. And this is what Paul says about himself in the book of Galatians. I have been, this is how he sees himself, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh as I walk around, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's kind of what these two verses we're looking at today talks about. And that's why when we read the Bible, we see things like, you know, take up your cross and follow me or the one who loses his life will save it. Paul is saying that Christian followers are kind of signing on for radical commitment. Back in the 60s, the press would talk about radicals. I mean, even today, people who are uh, hijacking planes and flying them into buildings, uh, do suicide bombings, that kind of stuff, they're called radicals, right, or extremists. But as this pic shows, there's more than one way to be a radical Muslim. I, I love this picture. Sorry. Just, just Sometimes I, so what's up here, I love. You don't care whether you like it or not. It's for me. Anyway, you know what a radical is, right? It's from the Latin word radix, which means root. You ever read a radish? It's a root, right? You math wizards, I'm not one of those, but some of you are. When you have a number with a little bitty number next to it, that little bitty number is called a radical. Why? Well, if the number is a two or a three, it's because the number that it's with is the square or the cube root. In the example on the screen, three is the cube root of 27. Three times three times three equals 27. So number, number, the number three, the root, is all in on getting cubed to be 27. So a radical is someone who is completely seized with all of his being with what he believes. His beliefs flow into every area of his life, which is what Paul's basically saying. That's radicalness. And a Christian is to be radical, seized down to his core, to his root, by his faith. Cool illustration of this I found uh, in World War II. Uh, a Polish priest named Maximilian Kolbe uh, was arrested and ended up in the Auschwitz prison camp. Not one of the better prison camps. He was arrested for publishing some anti-Nazi uh, uh, flyers. Well, in the camp, three prisoners managed to find their way out and they escaped. And the commandant of the prison selected 10 men as punishment to be starved to death in an underground bunker as sort of a warning for anybody else that would want to maybe try to escape. One of the men selected was a guy named Franciszek Gajanowicz. Gajanowicz, all right? 
Say that 10 times fast. Franciszek Gazanichek, who had a wife and kids back home. And he collapsed in anguish and he was begging for the commandant to spare him for the family's sake. And while it was going on, Colby, the priest, steps forward and told the commandant, I want to take the place of that man. And the commandant let him. Colby was the last of the ten men to starve to death. He ministered to the others and led them all to Christ before they died. Well, Franciszek Kazanacek made it through the war alive, but the survival guilt that he felt led him into a deep depression. Finally, a friend of of his kind of stepped up and said, you know, rather than being miserable and sad all the time, maybe you ought to spend your life trying to uh, extol the virtues of Maximilian Kolbe. Maybe you ought to see if you can't get him declared to be a saint. And the guy said, well, that sounds like a good idea. And he was seized to his core by this. And he dedicated his life to make that happen. I got a picture of... Gajanovitz, Gajanashek, with the Pope, the day that Kolbe was sainted. Now, in Scripture, saints really are nothing more than just Christians. So I'm not a huge fan of our Catholic brothers, the way they do sainthood, but I tell you what, I love this story. Because when someone lays down his life for you, it's only reasonable that you would spend the rest of your life exalting that guy's name, right? And that's Paul's recognition of what we ought to feel after the first 11 chapters of Romans. So let's just walk through these two verses and then we'll do communion where I think we're going to remind ourselves of someone who laid down his life for us. Paul says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. See, last week we talked in chapter 11. We ended that chapter and all it was about was about the mercies of God, how all the universe, how Jews and Gentiles are all going to be praising God for his mercies. Because none of them earned salvation. All of them are recipients of God's mercy. And chapter 12 begins with the mercies of God. You can understand again why I chose the clip from A Knight's Tale. Begin with, uh, because the end of that clip says, you know, mercy, (laughs) sign of weakness. God doesn't seem to think so. So I'm just going to go with God on this one. Why do we need God's mercy? Well, God tells us, right? None of us understands. None of us seeks for God. All of us have turned aside. You put all of humanity together in a big ball, and God says, that ball, useless. There's none righteous. No, not even one of us. We deserve death. But God's mercy took over. He drew us to himself. He gave us his own son to die for us. He persuaded us to proclaim faith in that God. He erased sin from our accounts. He declared us to be as perfect as Christ. He adopts us as his kids. He puts us into the very body of Christ and he's given us new life that will last forever. God's done everything for us. And Paul will contend that just like Gijanowitz dedicated his life to honoring that priest, so it's just a normal, reasonable, logical thing that you and I will do in response. Well, what is it? We are going to willingly present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The word bodies there has the idea of, of, of us in our totality, everything that we are. See, your bodies, right, they, they obey commands that emanate from your mind and your will and your emotions, right? It's your soul, your heart, right? When these things are totally committed to God, your body is going to follow suit, right? So when the spirit of you 
in you that is allowed to lead you, your mind, your will, and your emotions will be led by the Spirit. And what your body does is going to be uh, reflecting that Spirit's leadership. In other words, God wants all of you. Your speech, your morality, your attitudes, how you perceive everything, it will permeate every area of your life. Now, this sacrifice thing itself is an act of faith, right? Given God's mercy to us, it's just a normal thing to do, to lay our lives down to Christ as a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, living one. But we are to present our bodies. The word present means this, to intentionally lay something before someone for that person's use. You're giving it to someone else for their use. Such total commitment is not you and I promising to do anything specific. It's simply presenting ourselves to someone else. It's offering something. Israeli Air Force officers are sworn in, particularly the, pair, the uh, elite paratrooper unit, they're sworn in at Masada. You guys remember the story of Masada? No? It's where 800 Jews voluntarily committed suicide rather than be taken captive by the Romans, the ultimate act of patriotism. The swearing-in happens there to highlight that these officers are saying that they are presenting their lives to their nation, just as their predecessors did. They are presenting their lives. They're laying them down for use by their country. Right? To present yourself to God means, God, I, long, I no longer have control. I'm yours to use. God, I no longer have a will. I'm giving up my will. I'm giving up what I want to you, God. I no longer have my opinions. I've got your word. And I'm going to let your opinions govern mine because your word is truth. You're going to shape my opinions. It's an act of worship. And it says that it's holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Look, laying down a sacrifice before God sounds like something a priest might do, doesn't it? That's because it is. The Bible actually describes Christians as priests. We are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. And priests offer sacrifices. So you and I offer sacrifices. In Judaism, a priest represents God to men and then represents men to God. They offer up sacrifices to connect men and God. Well, Jesus turns out to be our ultimate priest. He offers the sacrifice of himself. And he exposes God to men. Didn't he say, hey, if you've met me, if you know me, you know God, right? And then he connects men to God. You and I are to do the same thing as Christians. We offer a sacrifice, our lives. As we live for God, we carry the gospel, which exposes people to God and brings God and people together for Christ, which is what priests do. In the Old Testament, a priest would offer up a burnt sacrifice as an act of worship, right? Uh, uh, he would be burn up an animal that somebody else brought on behalf of themselves, right? These Old Testament sacrifices, we're told, are just mere shadows. They're just, they're just uh, pictures of what it is that Christ is going to do. God says, I don't need the charred body of a critter. Those, all sacrifice, those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to what Christ was ultimately going to do on the cross, and what you and I as Christ followers are going to do as an act of worship in laying our lives down. This is not saying to God, I'm going to try my best. I'm going to try really hard. You know, you're simply laying your life down. You're simply presenting it for his use. And then life happens as God uses that life. And my guess is you will be amazed at how he will use it. And if Jesus was right, 
Not saying he was, but if he was, I think he was, it will be the most fulfilling, most joy-filled life you could ever have. Anybody watch the HBO show years ago called Band of Brothers? Band of Brothers, one of the best shows ever. It's, there's, it's, a, it's a war picture, so there's, there's general sadness and a little bit of blood. But it's a great scene where a captain named Spears is speaking to a terrified private. That's him. Uh, there was a battle, and, the, and this guy just simply could not participate in the battle. He was just cowering in terror in his foxhole. And uh, Spears comes up to him and says, uh, tell me, son, why you were cowering in your foxhole? And the private says, I was afraid. And the captain tells him, your problem, son, is that you have hope. You want to live. And that's why you are scared to die. As soon as you recognize that you are a dead man, then you are going to function like a soldier. Once you consider that you're already dead, you'll be able to live out like you're supposed to as a soldier. Or in the infamous words of the Joker, after Batman tells him, I'm going to kill you, Joker says, eh, I've already died once. It's very liberating. <laughs> Satan, threatens, threaten, Satan threatens to kill us, right? No problem. We've already died to ourselves. We've already given our lives away. It's very liberating, right? All we have to do is obey Christ after that. Follow the lead of the Spirit. Experience joy in all things. And when God calls my number, hey, I go home. So we offer our bodies to God like priests. Not of dead animals, but living humans. This says this is your spiritual worship. You may have a Bible that translates that phrase as reasonable service. The reason the Bible I use translates that as uh, spiritual worship and not reasonable service is because the word service in Greek is actually the word we get our word liturgy from. It's actually something a, a priest would conduct, a liturgy, a worship service. So in presenting and laying down our lives, it's just a logical act of worship in response to the mercies God has thrown our way. That's what God wants. And that's why the text says that it's pleasing to God. It's acceptable to God. Nothing pleases him more than a human being who understands what God has done for him and gives his, God his life. The logical act of worship is to mirror the offering Jesus gave his whole life. God wants all of us. George Mueller said it once, he said, you cannot really, you cannot really know the will of God if you insist on having one of your own. So you give up your life. It's pleasing to God. Look, if you're a parent, remember the times, there may be few. There may be only one. Well, your kid actually did the right thing. Been obedient? Isn't that a delight for you? Isn't that a joy when your kid does what pleases you? Well, God's no different. A living, holy sacrifice is pleasing. It's a delightful thing to him. So the question, if this is perfectly normal, if this is perfectly logical, if this is perfectly reasonable, if it's pleasing and acceptable to God, why is it that a lot of Christians simply don't do it. Well, that's why there's verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, it says. Here's why we screw this up. You and I have the problem of the majority of people around us. The pressure from our peers. We also have a fleshly body that Paul talked about a few chapters ago that wants to indulge in all the things we indulged in before we accepted Christ. We got a culture 
that does not love God and does its darndest to pull us away from and back from God. You know, they tell you, do what you want. Do what feels good to you at the moment. Get more stuff. Go into debt. Take care of number one. That is the broad way that the world preaches. It's the broad way that the church follows. Presenting yourself to God is the narrow path. And few there are that find it. So, the reason Christians don't do this is that the pleasures of the world mean so much more to us than God does. So, Paul's plea, don't be conformed to the world. You know, the, world, the word conformed means uh, conform. Your form is with. You look like everybody else. Or per our text here this morning, what your bodies do is just what everybody else's bodies do in this world around us, right? All the people who are not Christ followers do this and you look a lot like them. Instead, Paul encourages, hey, be different. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Metamorphe, your morphe, your structure is to be dramatically altered, changed, meta. When you got a mass of cells in your body that are malignant, you don't want them to metastasis, do you? Metastasize? You don't want them moving into other parts of your body and transforming those parts of your body, right? But we do want Christ to transform us. We are to be different. We're to be distinct. We're to be rare. We're to be unique. Don't just be different. God says, I, I want you to be better. It's why when we talk to our kids about Washington and Lincoln, we'll talk about, hey, I cannot tell a lie and I walk seven miles to deliver a library book back to, the, back to the library. Why? Because that kind of honesty and that kind of integrity is odd in our world. We try to show a kid that even though it's a dark world out there, there are people who are different, who have integrity, who have honesty, who are reliable. And that's what we want them to grow up to be, right? Because if they do, it'll make them distinct. So, Paul says, don't be just like the crowd. You allow God to change you. And here's the way that we will be changed. The renewal of our mind. The mind here includes the idea of your heart, your soul, your, your emotions, a lot of synonyms for that. Because see, what you think with your mind governs how you perceive things. It governs how you interpret things. It governs how you feel about things. It governs how you respond to things. And God's going to get radical on us. He's going to get down to the very root of us, where we really are, where you really are who you are, and he's going to work to transform that. It's going to renew your mind. You know what the word renew really means? Uh, think of a 56 Chevy that's been completely restored. I mean, they've taken it, and they've, and they've, they've worked to reverse the decay process. And bring it back to showroom floor quality. It's glorious, right? right? It's a result of love and care and time and patience and all kinds of stuff. We're, spo we're supposed to be renewed. In Jesus Christ, we are taken back and God begins a process of restoring us to what God originally laid out for us for what humans could really be. And the renewal should be ongoing. It should be renewing. Because the tenor, the, to, uh, the tense of that verse, or that verb, means that it is an ongoing process. 
So that means that you and I are never going to get a plate to a place where we kind of go, okay, we've obeyed something, we've heard something, we've moved in something, we've, obeyed, we, we, we've used our bodies for something, and we're not going to stop and go, okay, I, I, I have done it. I have now arrived. I am completely transformed. I am completely renewed. No, until the day we die, God says, we are going to be in the process of being restored, renewed back to the likeness of Christ, restored back to what it is that God had in mind for humans at the very beginning. And the way you know you're going to be renewed is this. It says, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Testing kind of looks like this. Before you take a step with your body and do something, (laughs) you're going to stop and kind of ask yourself some questions. Is this a good thing to do? Is this, a, is this a wise thing to do? Is this in accordance with the character of God? Would Christ have done this? Does Christ want me to do this? Now, is this pleasing to God? Is this a delight to God? Is this going to bring glory to God? Right? Go through that stuff, those processes. But a lot of us also learn something by another way of testing, don't we? <laughs> yeah? And that's when you say, forget you, God. I'm going to do what I want to do today. I'm not interested in being led by the Spirit. I'm not interested in laying my life down to you today. I'm going to do what I want to do. I want to do this. And you head out with you in charge, not the Holy Spirit in charge. And you're going to suffer for it. If you're a child of God, expect his discipline because he is a good, good father and he loves his kids. You do the wrong thing and you're experiencing the results. It's going to help you come to a wiser decision the next time. You learned by testing. Oh man, that didn't work. That separated me from my relationship with God. That, that's not what I want. That didn't turn out so well. These verses that we read just be, begin with our contemplation of the incredible mercies of God that has poured into our lives. And it ends up with you and me, individual Christians, being transformed to look more and more like Christ rather than squeezed into the mold of this world. And led by the Spirit of God, for us to stop and start asking questions like, hey man, is this the right thing to do? <laughs> Am I making a wise choice here? What would I be doing if I was doing what God would want me to do? It's kind of like rain on a mountain. Water runs down the mountain and it flows through certain gullies because it's been trained to go that way. And the gullies get deeper and deeper until that's really the only way that the gullies, that water can go down the gullies. And that's kind of the way our minds operate, kind of the way our wills operate, kind of the way our emotions operate, kind of the way our behavior operates before we have faith in Christ. We do the same things that the world does because we've always done the same things that the world does. So what God has to do is kind of dam up those gullies and redirect the water into a new path, the right path, And at first, it's kind of hard, right? Because there's no real gully there. But after a while, the water flowing down the new path begins to form a new gully. And all of a sudden, God's way just becomes your normal way. And I got to tell you, when this begins to happen, it's when the Christian life becomes really exciting. I mean, it really does. If your Christian life is boring, you can be pretty confident. That's because you were never wowed by God's amazing mercies to the point of becoming a little bit of a radical and presenting your life to him to use. As a result, not a whole lot of transformation taking place. 
but when you lay your life down and God picks you up and takes charge of it, that's when you are shooting down spiritual rapids. That's when you are smack in the current of what God is doing, not only in you, but also in the world. And life gets very exciting and very fulfilling. They asked Michelangelo one time, how are you going to take that huge block of stone and turn it into a statue of David? His response, oh, that statue or that big block of marble, it's, it's, already, it's already David. He's already in there. My job's pretty simple. I just need to chip away everything that isn't David. <laughs> and that's what the Christian life really is. God starts taking away in you, at your root level, what does not look like Christ. He does that to expose the Christ in you. And that process is not only pleasing to him, it's everything you really want. So that's it. I hope you are encouraged. I hope you are maybe a little bit challenged, maybe in a good way. I hope you don't just hear this message. I hope you take the step that God wants you to take today. We're going to have some time during communion to reflect on the mercies of God through what Christ did and has made available to us through his death and resurrection. And Paul would simply plead with you that, look, a love like that, doesn't it require some kind of a response? Communion will be right up here on the stage. Come as you're led.